may be seated. If, if you're going to follow somebody somewhere, you know, if you're driving along and you're following them to your destination, uh, it's necessary that, that you keep them in your sight. You have to see them. If you don't see them, it becomes impossible to follow them. And we are those who, who long to follow Jesus. And so this is why we're working our way through the gospel according to Luke. It's because in the gospel according to Luke, we have an opportunity to see Jesus. Week by week, passage by passage, we, we see Jesus with the hope that we will be able to follow Jesus. Follow along now this morning as I read from Luke 6, verses 37 to 42. This is the inspired word of God. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when... You yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You, hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that it is in your brother's eye. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you please pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, just as we read a moment ago this, this love letter to your word that is Psalm 119, to, to you, to, to knowing your statutes, to knowing your law, to following your law, you've given us your word for that purpose, that we might do that which you would have us do. But you have also given us your word that we might see that we are unable to do it, but that Christ has accomplished all for us. He has lived a righteous life and died a sacrificial death. He has paid our penalty and in him we have new life. And so we rejoice this morning. We pray that you would be with us as you have promised through your spirit dwelling in our hearts deep within us, moving us and causing us to have life where there was once death. Speak to us through your word this morning we pray. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh that we might know you in every sense. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few weeks back I made a reference to one of my favorite movies, The Princess Bride. And uh, we're going to return there this week. There's, there's a character in the movie the Princess Bride, named Bazzini. He's played by uh, Wallace Shawn, and he has this penchant for 
for saying this one word that pops up again and again in the movie. Whenever he sees something happen or hears something that he did not expect, he says, inconceivable. And this happens once, twice, three times, time and again. It keeps occurring at at these things that happen. He says, inconceivable, saying that whatever has happened is just inconceivable that it could have happened. And it happens again and again and again until finally another character, Inigo Montoya, says to him, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. You see, because he's constantly saying inconceivable, that this can't have happened, but it has. We see in today's text a series of statements, a series of statements that are widely familiar both to Christians and to non-Christians. And though widely known, they are almost as widely misunderstood, I would argue. And we could often comment on each phrase with the words of Inigo Montoya, I do not think it means what you think it means. So, as we look here, we see these often wrongly applied quotes of Jesus. First of all, in verse 37, judge not, and you will not be judged. Well, we first of all need to notice that Jesus is here in the word of God telling us that we are not to judge. There is something here that we are not to do, something namely judging others, whatever that might mean, is sinful. Just like murder, just like theft, just like adultery, to judge others is sinful. It causes us to have our relationship with God rent. It causes spiritual death in our souls. It causes us Ultimately, if unrepentant and uncovered by the blood of Christ, to go to hell. Well, when we read here, judge not and you will not be judged, many in our culture take that as the most wonderful of news. You see, because because in contemporary, secular, American culture, This is among the most popular Bible verses that exist. We live in an age and in a place and and in a time where, where the very idea that anybody could tell you what you can do or can't do is is abhorrent. And so that Jesus would come now and say, judge not, people think that what that must mean is, is you can't tell me that I can't do this, or you can't Tell me that this is wrong. Because Jesus says, judge not. It's music to people's ears. But it's important that we rightly understand what God has said to us here, not just take it at a surface level. What, what does it mean? Well, well, perhaps we should start with clearing out some of the brush. What does it not mean? And first of all, Jesus is absolutely not saying that there is no absolute truth. First of all, to say that there is no absolute truth is a self-defeating proposition, you understand, because it is a truth statement. 
It is saying it is absolutely true that there is no absolute truth. It's kind of obvious on its faith that, that it defeats itself. It can't be a correct statement to say that. But even if we set aside the philosophical argument and look simply to the word of God, the Bible is chock full of truth statements, truth assertions. In fact, that is one of the very things that sets Christianity apart from all other religions of the world is, is the fact that so many truth claims are made within Christianity upon which Christianity rests. There is the very foundational truth claim that Jesus is the Son of God who, who took on human flesh in time and space and died on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for our sins and rose again on the third day from the grave, having been completely dead, now completely alive. These are truth claims. Either they happened or they didn't happen. It's not just a matter of, I want to believe this or I don't want to believe this. Either it did or it didn't happen. They're truth claims. And if they are untrue, then the whole of Christianity falls. The whole enterprise crumbles to the ground. There are truth claims being made. Jesus himself makes many truth claims. He says in John 14, 6, in fact, that I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me it's an extremely exclusive truth claim that jesus is making jesus is not saying here that there is no absolute truth furthermore he's not saying that that we are not as believers we're not to discern right from wrong <laughs> jesus is not saying that at all he says in john 7 for instance do not judge by appearances but judge by right judgments he says we, we are supposed to make some judgments he's not saying don't don't just neglect the whole right from wrong and in fact in luke 6 uh the passage that follows us immediately which we'll cover next week beginning in verse 43 he essentially says that we are to judge people by the fruits of their lives and so he's not just saying don't consider right from wrong or separate those two that can't be what he's talking about he's not saying that we shouldn't utilize wisdom the book of proverbs is is a book that is dedicated to the very very principle of exercising wisdom of, of knowing wisdom using wisdom incorporating wisdom in our lives we must use wisdom and it's not saying here that that we should not have any legal systems you know that that if a person comes before a judge, if you're a judge, for instance, and a person comes before you and they've committed murder, he's not saying you can't convict them because Jesus said don't judge and they need to go free. No, that's not what he's saying. He has, he has very clearly given the power of the sword to the hands of, of government and he's instructed us to submit to that authority. So if it doesn't mean any of these things, what could it possibly mean when Jesus says do not judge and you will not be judged. I think the basic thrust of it, the basic meaning of it, the, the emphasis of what he is saying is found in taking that verse as a whole. Reading verse 37, it says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. I think this is a, a parallelism that he's giving. He's, he's not making two different points here. It's one point that he's stating two different ways. And that's what he's essentially saying when he says, don't judge. He's saying, don't 
condemn. Many of us know the, the, the Bible verse, John 3, 16, either from, from seeing a guy with a rainbow head holding up the sign at a football game or from some other place we've heard of it and probably gone and looked it up, if nothing else. And, and we know that it tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but shall have everlasting life. And what a wonderful promise that is from God to us in Christ Jesus. But do you know what John 3, 17 says? The very next verse after it says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, he's, he's saying that, that the purpose of Jesus, his His reason for coming is not to condemn but to save and if we are going to be followers of christ if we are to go where he has led if we are to live as he has lived if we are to be as he has been then we too must be about saving and not condemning what jesus is is disallowing here is essentially a a condemning disposition essentially judging people out of the pleasure of judging you know think i'm better than them and doesn't that make me feel good i i enjoy looking down upon other people thinking how much better i am than them rejoicing in the fact that that they haven't figured out what i've figured out or or they are not as blessed a situation as i am jesus is telling us not to treat people unfairly or unjustly in our opinion of them. He's saying, don't be judgmental. You know, there's a couple of different avenues this might follow. In being judgmental, I think that, that one way is, is in considering their sins to be worse than our sins. Isn't, isn't that kind of the natural tendency of our hearts? I know it is for me. When I look at other people and I, I see them committing certain sins and and, and I'll be like, boy, that's terrible. And, and, and I'll just look past the, the sins that fill my life, the sins that fill my heart. And if they're brought to mind, it's like, well, yeah, but that's not near as bad as that guy. Or, or what I'm doing now isn't near as terrible as what she is doing. That's one way that we can have this judging and condemning mindset is being more concerned about somebody else's sins, thinking their sins as being worse then I think of my own. Or another way, kind of the other side of that coin, and this is true far too often in our hearts as well, I fear. We, we often condemn those sins in others that are all too present in our own lives too, don't we? When we see something in the life of others, it just, oh, it infuriates us. That's horrible. I can't believe that when all the time the reality is that same sin resides in my own heart but i'm quick to see it in them slow to see it in myself kent hughes a pastor a commentator he he says this he says judgmentalism is at best a sign of spiritual cancer and it Worst a sign of spiritual death. I'm going to say that again. Judgmentalism is at best a sign of spiritual cancer. 
and at its worst, a sign of spiritual death. See, because the, the reality is that it leads us to a point or, or perhaps even reveals our, our tendency to see other people in the worst possible light, to, to think the worst of them, to, to attribute to them the worst in every situation and, and see ourselves, of course, in the best, always understanding, well, well, sure, that's true. Sure, I did that, but... I have my reasons. I have my excuses. You know, if, if you knew my backstory, then you'd understand. You'd understand how I got to this point, or you'd understand why it is I did this. And we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt far too much, far more than we should. And we give to others none of that. There's a merciless nature to this kind of judgmentalism. There is... A, a merciless nature that is especially heinous when we are those who have received mercy and who are to be champions of mercy. You know, the first and surest sign that we have received forgiveness is that we are those who are quick to grant forgiveness. And we pray every week, don't we? In the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The reality is, isn't it, that when we pray those words, if we really mean them in our heart, we are condemning ourselves we're signing our own death warrant because we harbor unforgiveness in our own hearts and we ask god to forgive in the same way that we forgive others we need to forgive fully realizing the forgiveness that he gives for if we don't forgive it betrays the fact that we haven't received this forgiveness and as thomas watson a puritan said a man can as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. Those are strong words. Kind of shocking words, actually, aren't they? A man can as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. I think he's right, because... It's one thing to have just an intellectual knowledge, to believe something intellectually to be true, but, but if we've not incorporated that truth into our hearts, if we've not truly trusted in Christ Jesus and received his mercy, then we are bound for hell. And if we are unforgiving, then it betrays the fact that perhaps we have not incorporated that into our lives. So we're to not condemn people we are not to harbor unforgiveness we are to not write people off now that's part of what this judgmentalism is that jesus talks of that we're to avoid don't write people off don't think that well they're they're beyond the gospel they're beyond god's reach there's no way he could ever save them because if we had a right appreciation and understanding of our own sinfulness then we would realize how very far gone we were when god grabbed us when he hunted us down when we were the sheep that had wandered off and he came after us and found us and saved us. 
There is none who is so sinful that they can be counted out of the grasp of God, unable to be reached by his grace. Furthermore, we're to understand that we are not to hate others. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't judge sin as sin. We do. Sin is still sin. Right is still right, and wrong is still wrong. You know, there, there are a lot of people who are involved with sinful lifestyles that, that are convinced that Christians are simply just being bigoted and hateful and holding to a biblical standard of morality. And, and this is not true. This is not the case that, that, that people necessarily have to be bigoted or, or hateful to hold to a biblical understanding of morality. It, it could be that they're just simply saying that we're just simply saying this is what God has said. And it's not up to us what's right or wrong. It's up to God to determine what is right and what is wrong. But at the same time, I think we must realize and come to terms with the fact that there are many who hold to a certain subset, at least, of Christian morality that is in line with biblical teaching. But they do so out of a sense of superiority and bigotry and hate. There are certain sins that that the very idea of people engaging in those sins just quite simply repulses us. Quite simply, I must admit, there are certain sins that, that repulse me in my heart. But oh, for it to be the case that we would be so repulsed by our own sin for us to realize that our own sin is every bit as heinous in the eyes of God to realize that that our own sin leaves us condemned apart from Christ Jesus. What would that look like? Well, I think Jesus gives us a good picture in John 8. John chapter 8. Jesus meets up with a group of Pharisees and scribes that have brought to him a woman who has been caught in adultery placing her in the midst of them. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And and I want to pause there for a second because because if this woman was caught in the act of adultery, it's quite clear that that she wasn't caught by herself, just by the very nature of the sin. And, And yet, she's the only one here that the Pharisees and the scribes have brought before him. They're, They're already kind of picking and choosing which people, which sinners they want to present as being sinful. But now in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such women, they said. So what do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some ground to charge, or some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And this is one of those questions I have. You know, we all have this list of questions that, that when we get to heaven, we want to ask Jesus. One of my questions is, is what did you write on the ground there, Jesus? You know, I, I mean, you, you thought it was important enough to put in the Bible that you wrote something on the ground there, but you don't tell us what it is. And so I'm curious, what did you write on the ground? He doesn't tell us, but we'll find out someday. 
As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. And let's remember that he's the one who could, right? (laughs) Because he said, "Let, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. There is only one person that was there that was without sin, and it was Jesus. He would have been perfectly in his rights to cast a stone at that point. She deserved to be judged. See, she wasn't not in sin. She was in sin. And the law of God said that she did deserve to be stoned for that. But Jesus says, I will show mercy instead of condemning, I will show love. But then what does he say? He doesn't just leave it at that. He takes it a step further. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. We see a beautiful Beautiful mixture here in what Jesus has done. He is, he is not condemned. He has he is not been hateful. He has been merciful and gracious and loving and kind. But at the same time, he says, this is sin. This is wrong. And you ought not to do it. And it is bad for you. And it is, it is going to kill you. And it is going to, it is going to break fellowship with God. It is, it is not what's best for you. So don't do it. But I love you, even while you were in the midst of your sin. You see, that's what he's done with us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I just want you to, for a second, contrast the attitude of Jesus toward this woman. Consider that on one side. And then consider the attitude of the Pharisees toward the woman. And just ask yourself in your heart. We don't need to take a a poll. You don't need to stand up. You don't need to say anything. But just ask yourself, is my attitude towards sinners more like that of Jesus on the one hand? Or is it more like the Pharisees on the other hand? Which more accurately represents my heart toward sinners? If it's more like Jesus, then it will cause us to heed his words as he speaks in verse 37 and following, which leads us to our second phrase. We're going to go more quickly through these next two. He says, give, it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. You see, it's a picture he gives here of the marketplace, this this metaphor he uses, something being abundantly given to you. This idea that that in the marketplace, people would come and they'd hold out their garment like this, right? And so he poured grain into it. And, and then they'd press it down, it'd be heaped up over the top, rounded over the top, and, and, and they'd shake it together so that it was able to be pressed down, good measure, full, as much as you could possibly get. And that's the idea, is, is you receiving as much as you could possibly get. As much what, exactly, is he talking about? Well, this is a favorite passage of the prosperity gospel folks, the folks who say, 
Well, he's saying, you know, give money to the church, and specifically to this church, and, and the more you give to us, the more you'll get. God will, will provide you with more money because you gave us more money. And if you, you know, want to get really, really rich, then you'll give lots and lots of money to us. I mean, to God, but to God through us. God does want you to be generous with your finances. Let's be perfectly clear about that. That is absolutely true. But God doesn't want you to give simply because you think that you'll get more back in return. You see, that's not giving. That's investing. They're different. And, and what Jesus is talking about here is not a financial investment plan. He's not saying this is like a 401k and if you put a lot of money in, eventually all the money will come back and here's my rate of return over the last 10 years and over the last 20 years and if you put it in this fund especially, then you'll really be blessed. That's not what Jesus is saying at all here. Not at all. God loves a cheerful giver, one who who wants to give to the work of the kingdom, and he does bless such a giver, but that's not primarily what this text is about at all. Remember, context is king, and what's the context here? We look at everything before it and everything after it, and, and it's saying nothing about money. But what it is talking about is it's talking about a generous disposition toward others. It's talking about a heart that is gracious and generous and kind and charitable. And wouldn't it be best to understand this as another parallelism, just like the one we looked at before? Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. It's two things, two times saying the same thing in two different ways. So we should be those, this verse is telling us, who give forgiveness, who give charity, who give kindness, who give mercy, who give love, knowing that we've been given all of these things through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is what it's saying. We come to a third statement in verse 39 and following. Specifically in verse 41 where we read this talking about the speck in your brother's eye and the log in your own. You know, the two primary complaints that people make about the church that, that aren't involved with the church, they complain first that all the church wants is your money. And sadly, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think that that is the case in some uh, situations. Secondly, the second big complaint is well the church is just full of hypocrites it's just full of a bunch of hypocrites and and they have no business telling me how to live my life when they're doing lots of wrong things themselves Jesus is speaking to such a context he says can a blind man lead a blind man won't they both fall into a pit you know, it's language that he uses throughout his ministry. In Matthew 15, he speaks about the Pharisees as blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, they'll fall into a 
pit. In Matthew 23, again, he says, Woe to you blind guides, you blind fools, you blind men, you blind guides, you blind Pharisees. He, he points to them as the, those who are blind, and I think that's exactly what he's saying here. He's saying the Pharisees are the blind men of whom he's, he's speaking. As he goes on to say, a disciple, in verse 40, is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So he's, he's saying here essentially this. We will only be as good as those whom we follow. And so if you follow the Pharisees, if you follow those who are judgmental, if you follow those who are legalistic, then you inevitably will likewise become judgmental and legalistic and condemning. Because this is the problem that they have. And you'll become like your teacher. And, and the other end of that is he's speaking to his disciples. And he's saying, the impetus is on you to not be these things because inevitably those who follow you are going to become like you. And so you must be charitable. And you must be loving. And you must be forgiving. And he speaks then about the speck in your brother's eye, the log in your own eye. He points to the fact that, that people are hypocritical even church leaders are sometimes hypocritical in that they look past their own sin, even if it's a huge sin. And this is meant to be hyperbolic language. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. It, it helps us see how ridiculous it is, right? If somebody had a little speck in their eye and you had a, a log coming out of your eye. You know? I mean, it, it just if you picture it in your mind, it just looks ridiculous. That's what Jesus wants it to look like. It's ridiculous. You say, you, you are ridiculous sometimes doesn't want us to be ridiculous he wants us to not be hypocrites to not be play acting pretending like we are concerned about sin when in reality all we're concerned about is other people's sin rather he wants us to be gospel influenced christians gospel influenced christians who freely admit our own sin who give that sin to Jesus then come alongside other fellow sinners walking with them in brokenness and humility helping them to follow along paths of righteousness even as they help us to do the same that's what he's saying he's saying don't come as some authority who's got everything all figured out as you're super spiritual come with your sin Give it to Jesus. He's the antidote to sin. He and him alone, if we don't have our sin taken care of, it will blind us. We will be blinded to our own problems and we will see things wrongly. But Jesus is the antidote to our sin, trusting in him and in him alone. I've got a story I want to share with you in closing here. It's a story I saw just yesterday. It's a story about a judge's heart of compassion toward a guilty party. It's about a gentleman named Sergeant Joseph Cerna. He had been in the armed forces. He was a special forces soldier in the Green Beret, served four combat tours in Afghanistan, was almost killed three different times, made it back with three Purple Hearts, many other military accolades, but like many combat veterans, when he got back, he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. He turned to alcohol and had been arrested 
charged with driving under the influence. He was placed into a program, a, a, a treatment program that the court had in Cumberland County, North Carolina, over which District Court Judge Lou Oliveira presided. And uh, Cerna fought to stay sober. He really, really did. And, and he had to appear between, uh, before the judge time after time after time. And he appeared 25 times before him, having his progress in this program reviewed until finally one time he came before him. And as he was there before the judge, he, he began to weep. And a broken man, he said to him, that, that drug test I took last week, I faked it, I lied about it. Because, because I've been involved in things I shouldn't have been involved with. Well, the judge was left with no choice. He had to mete out justice at this moment. And so he sentenced him to a day in jail, which was, was the sentence for this. And then something very strange happened. The judge got his car, pulled up to the front door, and had the bailiff bring Sergeant Cerna out and place him in the judge's car. And the judge drove him to the neighboring county where he would be put in jail. He walked him in, had him booked, had him brought to the jail cell, and the judge followed him into the cell. And he sat down on his cot next to him, and the guard closed the cell and locked it, and the judge spent the entire time with him in the cell. He later commented that he was, he was afraid that being left alone in, in, in this confinement by himself, it might trigger his PTSD, and, and he, he didn't want to take that chance. And so he chose to serve this penalty which was a righteous penalty, a just penalty, a penalty he deserved, he chose to serve it with him at his own expense. He stayed with him, serving that sentence with him. What a picture of the gospel except for this. Our sentence is not a night in jail. It is eternal condemnation. And our righteous judge did not just choose to serve it with us. He served it for us in our place that we might not have to. And for that reason, for that reason alone, as we'll sing in just a moment, God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That is the only way our sin can be defeated. We must cling to the grace of Christ Jesus. May that be the case for all of us. Would you pray with me? Our Lord God, please cause us more and more to understand this truth. That we indeed are sinners 
deserving of judgment, deserving of condemnation, but Christ has poured out his blood on us. He has shown us grace. Make us into those who are truly followers of Christ, those who likewise show grace and not condemnation, those who show love and mercy as he has shown it to us. We ask it in the name of our great high priest, whose name is love, even Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.